Chapter Two of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Two. As I walked home from church with my mother that day, the streets seemed as quiet and safe as her eyes. How suddenly tempting it seemed to me, this quiet and this safety, compared to the place where I was going. For I had decided to run away from my home and my mother that afternoon, down to the harbor to see the world. What would become of me way down there? What would she do if I never came back? A lump rose in my throat at the thought of her tears. It was terrible. All the same, I am going to do it, I kept thinking doggedly. And yet suddenly, as we reached our front steps, how near I came to telling her. But no, she would only spoil it all. She wanted me always up in the garden. She wanted me never to have any thrills. My mother knew me so well. She had seen that when she read stories of fairies, witches, and goblins out of my books to Sue and me, while Sue, though two years younger, would sit there like a little dark imp, her black eyes snapping over the fights, I would creep softly out of the room, ashamed and shaken, and would wait in the hall outside till the happy ending was in plain view. So my mother had gradually toned down all the fights and the killings, the witches and the monsters, and much to my disappointment had wholly shut out the gory pirates who were for me the most frightfully fascinating of all. Sometimes I felt vaguely that for this she had her own reason too, that my mother hated everything that had to do with the ocean, especially my father's dock that made him so gloomy and silent. But of this I could never be quite sure. I would often watch her intently, with a sudden sharp anxiety, for I loved my mother with all my soul, and I could not bear to see her unhappy. Never, on any account, I heard her say to Belle, are the children to go down the street toward the docks. Yes, ma'am, said Belle, I'll see to it. At once I wanted to go there. The street in front of our house sloped abruptly down at the next corner two blocks through poorer and smaller houses to a cobblestone space below, over which trucks clattered plainly on their way to the docks. So I could go down and around by that way. How tempting it all looked down there! Above the roofs of the houses the elevated railroad made a sharp bend on its way to the bridge. Trains roared by, high over all the great bridge swept across the sky. And below all this, and more thrilling than all, I caught glimpses of strange ragged boys. Mix! Bell sometimes called them, and sometimes Finian Mickeys. Up here I had no playmates. From now on our garden lost its charms. Up the narrow courtway which ran along the side of the house I would slip stealthily to the front gate and often get a good look down the street before Bell sharply called me back. The longest looks I found were always on Sunday afternoons, when Bell would sit back there in the garden close to the bed of red tulips which encircled a small fountain made of two white angels. Belle, who was bony, tall, and grim, would sit by the little angels reading her shabby Bible. Her face was wrinkled and almost brown, her eyes now kind, now gloomy. She had a song she would sing now and then, for beneath the Union Jack 
we will drive the Finians back, is all I can remember. She told me of witches in the Scotch hills. At her touch horrible monsters rose in the most surprising places. In the bathtub, for example, when I stayed in the bath too long, she would jerk out the stopper, and as from the hole there came a loud gurgle, "'It's the weir shark,' Bell would mutter, and I would leap out trembling. This old weir shark had his home in the very middle of the ocean. In one gulp he could swallow a boy of my size, and this he did three times each day. The boys were brought to him by the condor, a perfectly hideous bird as large as a cow and as fierce as a tiger. If ever I dared go down that street and disobey my mother, the condor would swoop down over the roofs, snatch me up in his long yellow beak with the blood of the last boy on it, and with thunder and lightning would carry me off far over the clouds and drop me into the weir shark's mouth. Then Belle would sit down to her Bible. Sunday after Sunday passed, and still in fascinated dread I would steal quietly out to the gate and watch this street forbidden. Pointing to it one day, Bell had declared in awful tones, Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. But it was not broad. In that at least she was all wrong. It was, in fact, so narrow that a condor as big as a cow might easily bump himself when he swooped. Besides, there were good strong lamp-posts where a little boy could cling and scream, and almost always somewhere in sight was a policeman so fat and heavy that even two condors could hardly lift him from the ground. This policeman would come running. My mother had said I must never be scared by policemen, because they were really good kind men. In fact, she said, it was foolish to be scared by anything ever. She never knew of Bell's methods with me. So at last I had decided to risk it, and now the fearful day had come. I could barely eat my dinner. My courage was fast ebbing away. In the dining-room the sunlight was for a time wiped out by clouds, and I grew suddenly happy. It might rain, and then I could not go. But it did not rain, nor did anything I hoped for happen to prevent my plan. Bell sat down by the angels, and was soon so deep in her Bible that it was plain I could easily slip up the path. Sue never looked up from her sand-pile to say, "'Stop, Billy! He's running away from home!' With a gulp I passed my mother's window. She did not happen to look out. Now I had reached the very gate. I can't go. I can't open the gate. But the old gate opened with one push. I can't go. There is no policeman. But yes, there he was on my side of the street, slowly walking toward me. My heart thumped. I could hardly breathe. In a moment, with a frantic rush, I had reached the nearest lamp-post and was clinging breathless. I could not scream. I shut my eyes in sickening fear and waited for the rushing of enormous wings. But there came no condor swooping. Another rush, another post, another and another. "'What's the matter with you, little feller?' I looked up at the big safe policeman and laughed. "'I'm playing a game,' I almost shouted and ran without touching another post two blocks to the cobblestone space below. I ran blindly around it several times. I bumped into a man who said, "'Hey there, look out!' After that I strutted proudly, then turned and ran back with all my might up the street and into our house and up to my room. 
and there on my bed to my great surprise I found myself sobbing and sobbing. It was a long time before I could stop. I had had my first adventure. I made many Sunday trips after that, and on no one of them was I caught. For delighted and proud at what I had done I kept asking Belle to talk of the condor. Gloomily she piled on the terrors, and seeing the odd look in my eyes, awe at my own courage in defying such a bird, she felt so sure of my safety that often she would barely look up from her Bible the whole afternoon. Even on work days over her sewing she would forget, and so I went to destruction. At first I stayed but a little while and never left the cobblestone space, only peering up into the steep little streets that led to the fearsome homes of the mix. But then I made the acquaintance of Sam. It happened through a small toy boat which I had taken down there with the purpose of starting it off for heathen lands. As I headed across the railroad tracks that led to the docks, suddenly Sam and his gang appeared from around a freight car. I stood stock still. They were certainly mixed, ragged and dirty, with holes in their shoes and soot on their faces. Sam was smoking a cigarette. "'Hey, fellers,' he said, "'look at Willie's boat.' I clutched my boat tighter and turned to run, but the next moment Sam had me by the arm. "'Look here, young feller,' he growled, "'you've got the wrong man to do business with this time.' "'I don't want to do any business,' I gasped. "'Smash him, Sam. Smash in his nut for him,' piped the smallest Mickey cheerfully. And this Sam promptly proceeded to do. It was a wild and painful time, but though Sam was two years older he was barely any larger than I, and when he and his gang had gone off with my boat, as I stood there breathing hard, I was filled with a grim satisfaction, for once when he tried to wrench the boat from me I had hit him with it right on the face, and I had had a glimpse of a thick red mark across his cheek. I tasted something new in my mouth and spit it out. It was blood. I did this several times, slowly and impressively, till it made a good big spot on the railroad tie at my feet. Then I walked with dignity back across the tracks and up the way of destruction home. I walked slowly, planning as I went. At the gate I climbed up on it and swung. Then with a sudden loud cry I fell off and ran back into the garden crying, I fell off the gate, I fell on my face. So my cut and swollen lip was explained, and my trips were not discovered. I felt myself growing older fast, for I knew that I could both fight and tell lies besides defying the condor. In the next few years, for weeks at a time, my life was centered on Sam and his gang. How we became friends, how often we met, by just what means I evaded my nurse, all these details are vague to me now. I am not even sure I was never caught, but it seems to me that I was not. For as I grew to be eight years old, Belle turned her attention more and more to that impish little sister of mine, who was always up to some mischief or other. There was a corner grocer, too, with whom I pretended to be staunch friends. I'm going to see the grocer, I would say, when I heard Sam's cautious whistle in front of the house and so presently I would join the gang. I followed Sam with a dog-like devotion, giving up my weekly twenty-five cents instead of saving it for Christmas, 
and in return receiving from him all the world-old wisdom stored in that bullet-shaped head of his which sat so tight on his round little shoulders. And though I did not realize it then, in my tense crowded childhood, through Sam and his companions I learned something else that was to stand me in good stead years later on. I learned how to make friends with the slums. I discovered that by making friends with Micks and Dockers and the like you find they are no fearful goblins, giants bursting savagely up among the flowers of your life, but people as human as yourself, or rather much more human, because they live so close to the harbor, close to the deep rough tides of life. Into these tides I was now drawn down, and it did me some good and a great deal of harm for I was too little those days for the harbor. Sam had the most wonderful life in the world. He could go wherever he liked and at any hour, day or night. Once, he said, when a feller was drowned he had stayed out on the docks all night. His mother always let him alone. An enormous woman with heavy eyes, I was in awe of her from the first. The place that she kept with Sam's father was called the Sailor's Harbor. It stood on a corner down by the docks, a long, low, wooden building painted white, with twelve tight-shuttered, mysterious windows along the second story, and below them a lady's entrance. In front was a small blackboard with words in white, which Sam could read. Ten-cent dinners stood at the top. Below came coffee and rolls. Next, ham and eggs. Then, bacon and eggs. And then, Today, with a space underneath where Sam's fat father wrote down every morning still more delicious eatables. You got whiffs of these things and they made your mouth water, they made your stomach fairly turn against your nursery supper. But most of our time we spent on the docks. All were roofed and exploring the long dock sheds and climbing down into the dark holds of the square-rigged ships called clippers we found logs of curious mottled wood, huge baskets of sugar, odorous spices, indigo, camphor, tea, coffee, jute, and endless other things. Sam knew their names and the names of the wonder places they came from, Manila, Calcutta, Bombay, Ceylon. He knew besides such words as hawser, bulkhead, and ebb-tide, and Sam knew how to swear. He swore with a fascinating ease such words as made me shiver and stare, and then he would look at me and chuckle. "'You think I'll go to hell for this, don't you?' he asked me once, and my face grew hot with embarrassment, for I thought that he assuredly would. I asked him what were heathen lands, and he said they were countries where heathen lived. And what were heathen? Cannibals. And what were they? Fellers that eat fellers, he said. Alive? I inquired. He turned to the gang. Listen to the kid. He wants to know if they eat him alive. Sam spat disgustedly. Nah, he said. First they roast em like any meat. They roast em, he added reflectively, until their skin gets brown and bubbles out and busts. One afternoon a carriage brought three travelers for one of the ships, a man, his wife, and a little girl with shining yellow pigtails. "'To be et,' Sam whispered as we stood close beside them. 
and then, pointing to some of the half-naked brown men that made the crew of the ship nearby, "'Cannibals!' he muttered. For a long time I stared at these eaters, especially at their lean brown stomachs. "'We're safe enough,' Sam told me. "'They ain't allowed to come ashore.' I found this very comforting. But what a frightful fate lay in store for the little girl with pigtails. As I watched her I felt worse and worse. Why couldn't somebody warn her in time? At last I decided to do it myself. Procuring a scrap of paper I retired behind a pile of crates and wrote in my large clumsy hand, You look out. You are going to be et. Watching my chance I slipped this into her satchel and hoped that she would read it soon. Then I promptly forgot all about her and ran off into a warehouse where the gang had gone to slide. These warehouses had cavernous rooms, so dark you could not see to the ends, and there from between the wooden columns the things from the ships loomed out of the dark like so many ghosts. There were strange sweet smells, and from a hole in the ceiling there was a twisting chute of steel down which you could slide with terrific speed. We used to slide by the hour. Outside were freight cars in long lines, some motionless, some suddenly lurching forward or back, with a grinding and screeching of wheels, and a puffing and coughing from engines ahead. Sam taught me how to climb on these cars, and how to swing off while they were going. He had learned from watching the brakeman that dangerous backward left-hand swing that lands you stock-still in your tracks. It was a splendid feeling. Only once Sam's left hand caught. I heard a low cry, and after I jumped I found him standing there with a white face. His left hand hung straight down from the wrist, and blood was dripping from it. "'Shut up, you damn fool,' he said fiercely. "'I wasn't saying nothing,' I gasped. "'Yes, you was. You was starting to cry. Holy Christ!' He sat down suddenly, then rolled over and lay still. Someone ran for his mother, and after a time he was carried away. I did not see him again for some weeks." We did things that were bad for a boy of any size, and I saw things that I shouldn't have seen. A docker crushed upon one of the docks and brought out on a stretcher, dead. A stoker as drunk as though he were dead being wheeled on a wheelbarrow to a ship by a man called a crimp, who sold this drunken body for an advance on its future pay. Sam told me in detail of all these things. There came a strike, and once in the darkness of a cold November twilight I saw some dockers rush on a scab. I heard the dull, sickening thumps as they beat him. And one day Sam took me to the door of his father's saloon, and pointed out a man in there who had an admiring circle around him. "'He's going to jump from the bridge on a bet,' Sam whispered. I saw the man go. For what seemed to me hours I watched the great bridge up there in the sky with its crawling processions of trolleys and wagons, its whole moving armies of little black men. Suddenly one of these tiny specks shot out and down. I saw it fall below the roofs. I felt Sam's hand like ice in mine. And this was not good for a boy of ten. But the sight that ended it all for me was not a man, but a woman. It happened one chilly March afternoon when I fell from a dock into water covered with grease and foam, came up spluttering and terrified, 
was quickly hauled to the dock by a man and then hustled by Sam and the gang to his home, to have my clothes dried and so not get caught by my mother. Scolded by Sam's mother and given something fiery hot to drink, stripped naked and wrapped in an old flannel nightgown and told to sit by the stove in the kitchen, I was then left alone with Sam. And then Sam, with a curious light in his eyes, took me to a door which he opened just a crack. Through the crack he showed me a small back room full of round iron tables. At one of these was a man, stoker or sailor, I don't know which, his face flushed red under dirt and hair, held in his lap a big fat girl, half-dressed, giggling and queer, quite drunk. And then while Sam whispered on and on about the shuttered rooms upstairs, I felt a rush of such sickening fear and loathing that I wanted to scream, but I turned too faint. I remember awakening on the floor, Sam's mother furiously slapping Sam, then dressing me quickly, gripping me tight by both my arms, and saying, "'You tell a word of this to your pa, and we'll come up and kill you.' That night at home I did not sleep. I lay in my bed and shivered and burned. My first long exciting adventure was over. Ended were all the thrills, the wild fun. It was a spree I had had with the harbor from the time I was seven until I was ten. It had taken me at seven, a plump, sturdy boy, and at ten it had left me wiry, thin, with quick, nervous movements and often dark shadows under my eyes, and it left a deep scar on my early life for over all the adventures and over my whole childhood loomed this last thing I had seen, hideous, disgusting. For years after that when I saw or even thought of the harbor I felt the taste of foul, greasy water in my mouth and in my soul. So ended the first lesson. End of chapter 2 Recording by Tom Weiss